Uh, we're in James chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to talk about the evil sin of presuming. The evil sin of presuming of not inviting God into my thoughts and plans. The evil sin of presuming of not inviting God into my thoughts and plans. James kind of brings a sledgehammer with him when he wrote, and that's how he sizes up presuming in James chapter 3, verse 14 uh, through 17. So let's read that together. James chapter 3, verse Excuse me, James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sometimes we come across verses in Scripture that are extremely well known. Verse 17, I think, is one of those. Whoever knows the right thing to do, fails to do it, for him it is sin. And because they're so well known... Um, there's a temptation to lift them out of their immediate context and treat them as though they were standalone truth. And sometimes that can be uh, done. Certainly God can apply His Word any way He wants, any time He wants, to anybody that He wants. Um, but ours is the responsibility of seeking to rightly divide the Word of Truth and so to take verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do, fails to do it, for him it is sin, and leave it all by itself out of the context wouldn't, would be a little sloppy. And we don't want to do that. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of that and where it can go bad. Um, an example uh, comes from Second Chronicles chapter 7, well-known passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves... And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And there's a temptation and a tendency sometimes on the part of some to lift that verse out of its context and claim it for us, for America. If Christians in America will humble themselves and seek His face and God's going to heal our land and we're just claiming that thing as a promise, and God might choose to apply it that way. But if it's a general truth that should be applied, then it could be applied to Russia as well. If God's people who are called by His name in Russia would humble themselves and seek His face and turn from their wicked ways, He would heal their land also. If it's a truth that, that's general, that applies universally, that, universally, then it would apply to Albania as well. And Albania is a country that, um, that is atheistic. But if there are some believers in Albania who would humble themselves and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways, then he would be obligated to heal their land also. And so we have to be very careful. Can God choose to apply that particular principle to any nation that he would want to? Yes, he can. That's his prerogative. But we have the responsibility of seeking to rightly divide the word. And in that context, he's speaking to Israel. Another example would be Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, 11. And I have written here, it wasn't given for a graduating high school class. Jeremiah 29, 11 says... 
I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Could God choose to use Jeremiah 29, 11 and apply it to the heart of a young person graduating from high school or, or any of us, as a, you know, to, to, as a matter of fact? Of course he could. He can do anything he chooses with his word. Um, but in the context, he's speaking to Israel, who was in Babylon, rather Judah and Benjamin, who was in Babylonian captivity. Verse 10 says, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, 70 years of captivity because of disobedience to the Lord, the 10 northern tribes had already been carried off to Assyria uh, as captives. And so he says, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I'll visit you, perform my good word towards you, and cause you to return to this place for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we have to be very careful. God has the freedom to apply his word however he chooses. We have the responsibility to seek to understand what it says in the context that he gives it. In our passage today, we have one of those types of verses, a significant spiritual truth. Carefully, delicately applied, it can fit in many situations, but in the context, James drives it home towards a very specific situation. Uh, in the last verse of today's passage, um, it's the last verse of today's passage, so let's start at the end. Um, I want to start at the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning and fill in, some, fill in some truth along the way. Verse 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's a spiritual truth within a context in James chapter 4, but it's a spiritual truth that God can apply to other situations as he chooses to do so. And, and there are situations where this truth gets applied. There are some others where knowing the right thing to do and not doing it becomes sin. Absolutely there are. Let me just give three or four examples. Eating meat in the presence of one who is weak and rigid and doesn't have the freedom to eat meat in the context of the New Testament um, from Romans chapter 14 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 13 um, would be forcing my freedom upon a brother and causing him to stumble. He was, he's referred to as a, as a weaker brother. And so me taking my liberty, the freedom that I have to do that, and forcing someone else to stumble, is it the right thing to do? Of course not. So if I do it, have I sinned against that individual? Yes, I have. That would be an example. Recognizing the need to forgive someone who has offended you and delaying in doing so, just kind of holding them in prison to make them suffer a little bit, um, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So if I choose to do that, um, would that become sin for me? Of course it would. Knowing that I shouldn't speak against or criticize a brother. We learned about this last week, chapter 4, verse 11. But I do so because, and I fill in the blank of why it's justifiable for me to Go contrary to Scripture, something that I shouldn't do, knowing the right thing to do, but not doing it. Not loving a brother when I know Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That would be me knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. Um, in temptation, uh, Jesus uses hyperbole. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And I look out this morning, everybody's got their hands and everybody's got their feet and, and we have our eyes and... Um, so you're either never tempted or it was hyperbole and you've taken care of that, and I hope you have. If your hands or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame 
uh, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so is it okay to know what's right and not do it? And James says, no, it becomes sin for us. Though James has this in a very specific context, God can choose to use it in lots of different ways. That's his choice. We don't get the freedom to do that. We could give so many examples of knowing what the right thing to do is and not doing it. And James says it's sin. It's missing the mark that God desires that we hit. It's falling short of the glory of God. It's, not, it's knowing to do good and choosing to not do it. Not doing what we know is right can happen in so many different ways like justifying why we don't give to the poor. If, if I gave to the poor, why he might just take that money and go out and you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you fill in the blank or however it is that you justify to not help the poor. And yet we're told to help the poor. Rationalizing why something is not my responsibility is another way. Blame shifting, pointing a finger at someone else. But in the end, knowing to do good and choosing not to do it. And inside... In our inner man, the Spirit of God speaks softly to our conscience, and we recognize, I violated what God wanted me to do. And James wants to drive that home. What's the appropriate response when I find myself here? Knowing what's right and choosing not to do it. Acknowledge it, call it what God calls it, and repent. Thank God for the blood of Christ that cleanses me from all sin and unrighteousness. And then submit myself to God. And it might be that he gives me a test to see if I'm going to do what's right if I know what's right. It could be. That's up to him. He gets to do that. So we're in James. um, And I want us to see where he puts this particular spiritual truth, this verse. So let's go back to James chapter 4, verse 13. This is what he says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So come now, you who say, James, the Spirit of God using James directs this truth in this passage, either to unbelievers demonstrating that they're not followers of Christ, or perhaps even immature believers who need to grow in their submission and awareness of God in every aspect of their life. Let me just give us the main points, and then we're going to go back. It's really pretty easy. It flows very easily. Let me give us the main points, and then we'll go back and put a little bit of meat on them. The main points are this, plans made with no consideration and inclusion of God are foolish, arrogant even. Limitation of understanding my future should cause me to look to God, not to ignore Him. And I have a note here, and I spoke to a couple of teenagers. Teenagers, there's a good word in this message for you. And at the end of today's message, if you come and tell me what it is, We'll go to, not today, but we'll mark a time when we'll go to love it and I'll buy you a pizza or something like that, all right? So I want you, I want you teenagers to listen up. And, if, and teenagers, for you 60-year-olds, that doesn't cut it, okay? Even though you might act like one. All right, buy your own pizza, all right? Plan, <laughs> plan, and buy mine too. Plan, plans made with no, no consideration and inclusion of God are foolish, arrogant even. 
limitation of understanding my future should cause me to look to God, not ignore him. If the Lord wills is a way to acknowledge God is in control, not me. The opposite of if the Lord wills is arrogance, which James calls evil. And an interesting description of arrogance is going to be given. So if you do this, so, so, so if you know to do what's good and you don't do it, then to you it's sin. That's what James is saying. So let's go back and fill in the blanks. Plans made with no consideration and inclusion of God are foolish, arrogant even. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. How many of us anticipate waking up tomorrow? My hand is up. If the Lord wills, we can put that in there. Our hands are up. We anticipate having another tomorrow, but we don't have a guarantee on it, do we? And there are a lot of people around our city, and then if you take it nationwide or worldwide, that didn't wake up to today, which would have been yesterday's tomorrow. So we don't have a guarantee on tomorrow. Those James writes, writes to were more arrogant. Their thoughts were, Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to spend a year there and trade and make profit. I'm going to get three or four guys from our church, and we're going to go up to Omaha, and we're going to buy some things and sell some things, and and we're going to make more money on what we're selling than what we're buying, and we're going to stay for about a year, and the next thing you know, we're going to leave, and we're going to have made, who knows, $50,000, $100,000. That's what they were doing. They didn't know if they had tomorrow, and if they did have tomorrow... They couldn't foresee what might happen uh, in their tomorrow. And I wonder if James had in mind a parable that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 12. And I want to read part of it. Jesus spoke a, a parable there with an emphasis on being rich towards God. But in this parable, he includes the idea of presuming, presuming upon God not, not in, or, or, or presuming upon life and not even including God in, in the things that I plan. And this is Luke chapter 12 verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns, build greater, then I'll store all my, store all my crops and goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He didn't know that he didn't have tomorrow. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so those to whom James is writing, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, they named the name of Christ either, either genuinely or, or they named it, but they weren't demonstrating the genuineness of a biblical faith. They were making plans, presuming upon tomorrow, not inviting, not including God into the picture. In James, there's no indication that these individuals to whom he's speaking have any concern about re- being rich towards God. On the contrary, they don't include God in their thoughts. They don't include God in their plans. They've, they've, they've masterminded, they've studied, they work hard, they've planned, but no God. Um, they don't include God in their thoughts or their plans. Their only concern is making a profit. They don't mind working. That's a good quality. They don't mind going into another city and doing the business that they were talking about. So they didn't all bad qualities here, but their work is without the Lord involved, the one who gives them the breath of life. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, the preacher makes this observation. What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end because he's God. I know that nothing is better for them, the laborers, than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So God is acknowledged in the labor that the writer of Ecclesiastes is speaking of and those laborers. There isn't anything wrong with the labor that they were going to do. What the problem was that they were doing it with godlessness in mind. They didn't acknowledge who God was. He's, He's written out of the picture. There's nothing wrong with traveling to another city to engage in trading for profit. It's the godlessness that James is addressing Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. You know the passage, Matthew 6. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we, how are we going to pay our bills? What are we going to drink? The Gentiles, the godless, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But you seek first the kingdom of God, you know the verse, and his righteousness. And then what? All of these things will be added unto you. So we're not irresponsible and not working. The problem with these that were going into these cities, planning on buying and trading and selling for a year and making their profit, was that they were doing it with no thought of God at all. And James calls it, evil. It isn't just presumption. It isn't just arrogance. He uses a strong word. He uses the word evil. The plan was made with no consideration and inclusion of God. Um, Those plans are foolish, arrogant even. The second point is this, limitation of my understanding uh, the future should cause me to look to God not to ignore who he is. And it says, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Even the greatest of men, if we looked backwards in history, and named some people that were tremendously great. And they could be politically great, they could be militarily great, they could be rich in our world, they could be smarter than everybody else, or the best football, whatever it might be. Even the greatest of men, like Nebuchadnezzar, he was incredibly great. Or David, under his kingdom, or Darius the Mede, even the greatest, the most powerful, the smartest, the richest, all walk the earth about the same number of years. I mean, some of them die a year or two earlier or a decade or two, or they might live a decade or two longer than the others, but not long in light of eternity, a mist, a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. I know someone who has always been, and that would be the Lord, someone who sees and is aware of everything, someone who reigns from on high. The way he chooses to reign, not the way I want him to reign or that I think he should reign. You and I don't know what tomorrow brings, but we know him in Jesus and he knows what tomorrow brings. And James says, 
Don't just go and make your plans, but say, if the Lord wills, submit yourselves to the Lord, the one who knows what tomorrow has, and make your plans that way. Teenagers, include God in your present plans at school. If you do a sport, do a sport for the Lord. If you play an instrument, play an instrument for the Lord. If you study hard for a science test or whatever it might be, do it as unto the Lord. Include God in your present plans. Include God in your future plans. Include God in your school. Include God in the work that you're going to pursue. We need to say this these days. Include God in your sexuality. Include God in the spouse that God gives you as well. Job acknowledged that his life was but a breath. Peter quoted Isaiah when he said, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're here just for a little while. And if I asked teenagers, I'm not going to do this, but if I asked those that were 80 years old and above to raise their hand and give you a word of counsel, the counsel that they would give you would be, include God in your plans. 80 sounds like it's a long, long, long ways away when you're 13 and 14 and 15 years old. But when you're 65, 80 is not that far away anymore. And those that, are, those that are in their upper years would give the counsel of, include the Lord in your plans. Amen, older folks? I heard some young voices in there. <laughs> when I was studying this, I looked at the Kansas City Star obituary just to glance at the age of some of the people who had died this particular week in our town and then multiply that by all of the towns in the United States all the way around the world. I found somebody who died at 77, at 70, somebody who died at 22, at 58, at 94, at 63, at 59, at 47. 22 was the youngest I found this time. I've buried a baby before. That's a hard funeral. Um, we don't have a guarantee on tomorrow. My limited understanding of the future of my tomorrow should cause me to look to God, not to stiff arm and plan him out of the things that I do. We anticipate tomorrow. I do, but I don't have a guarantee on it. I'm planning on waking up in the morning, but I don't know that I'll wake up in the morning because not everybody that lived yesterday woke up today. We anticipate a healthy tomorrow, but there's no guarantee on that either. We want to live healthy. We hope to live healthy. Some of us pursue living healthy. Others, not so much. We want it, though, but we don't have any guarantees on that. This is actually the second time James mentions that life is short. In chapter 1, verse 9, he said, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, like its flowers fall, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away with his pursuits. The rich, the poor, the young... The old, the educated, the more simple, all will meet their creator on the other side of life. Every single one. Dr. Nye is categorically completely wrong. It is not annihilation after death. We will stand before our Lord. 
That's why Moses prayed this in Psalm 90, kind of unique that Moses would write a psalm. But David made the book of Psalms and included one that Moses wrote. And in it, this was his prayer. Satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And so I think about these little kids that we just saw parade in front of us. And they're going downstairs and they're going to hear stories about Jesus. And let me say this, mom and dad, it's your responsibility to teach them about Jesus. We come alongside the moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, but it's your task and your responsibility. We pray that they would be satisfied early in life with the mercy of the Lord so that they would enjoy God all of the days of their life. Let your work, he said, appear to your servants, your glory to their children. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So can you see the difference between what Moses is praying and what James is saying is happening to some of those in the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad? Moses is saying, God, we want you involved in our work and the things that we do. Establish it. But they were saying, we're not even thinking about God. We're just going to go get some profit. We're going into this city. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to walk away richer than what we were. No God involved. Saying or an attitude of if the Lord wills is a way to acknowledge God is in control and not me. If the Lord wills. And I wrote down here, Paulina, si Deus quiser. Probably the most often spoken phrase that I heard in the 12 plus years that we lived in Brazil was si Deus quiser. And an awful lot of the time it was poor people saying, if the Lord wills, si Deus quiser, tomorrow I will do this. What are you planning on doing for a job after you get out of high school? Well, si Deus quiser is what we would hear. So it isn't just the phrase that we attach to it, but if there's a genuineness of if God desires, I'm lining myself up to do what it is that he desires, that's where, that's where it becomes significant. The meaning is critical, not just the saying of it. Doesn't mean I don't function with my responsibility that I might not go to Omaha with somebody and, and buy and sell and make a profit but God, we want you involved in this. And it isn't just that I make my plans and God, attach yourself, would you? But God, would you you be in the midst of us while while we're making our plan? Doesn't mean we don't make our plans to go into a far city. It means allowing God his rightful place in my life because I am his creation. I am his creation. He is my creator. He merits my worship. He merits my life. He's the one who gave his body and his blood on the cross that I could have life. See, Deus quiser is a way, see, Deus quiser, saying if the Lord wills is a way of acknowledging God is in control and not me. Notice this is an if the Lord wills situation. Sometimes in some things we might not know, and yet we pray if God wills, or we say if God wills. We should certainly want him involved. There are some things that we know. We don't have to wonder about whether they're the Lord's will. Some that are very clearly described in Scripture. That believers present themselves unto God a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12. We don't have to wonder if He wants me to do that. We know that He wants me to do that. We rightly divide the Word. He's calling us to present ourselves unto Him. And so we do that. That believers don't conform themselves to the world, but are transformed by the renewing of our mind because of the Word of God. We don't have to wonder if the Lord wants that. Something that's very clearly given in scripture that we're thankful in all things in all things be able to find something that i'm thankful unto the lord about 
Don't have to wonder whether that's something that he desires. The believer's sanctification, that, we, that believers abstain from sexual immorality. And we could, we could list some other things as well. But here in James, he says, if the Lord wills, the things that we're not sure about, invite him in. Let him be in the midst of those plans as well. In Acts chapter 5, we find an interesting Pharisee. Gamaliel is his name. The ministry of the gospel was growing. And it says in verse 14, and more than ever, I don't know that I've ever seen that before, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So the church is just exploding in Acts chapter 5. And that made the high priests jealous. Um, Their church is getting to be bigger than our synagogue, and that was a problem for them. In verse 18, they arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. If we fast forward, they were beaten for for communicating the gospel. Um, They contained them again after they'd been let out and were preaching the gospel in a public square. They brought their counsel together, and this is what it says, chapter 5, verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up, gave orders to the men outside, uh, gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do about, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. So he had a pretty good following, 400 men. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people. After him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you, may, you, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so his counsel to them was be extremely careful. Don't find yourself or position yourself in a situation where, you, where, you're, where you're found battling against the Lord. What we want to do is we want to be found battling with the Lord in our front and us following him. Gamaliel is saying, if this is God's will, it's going to happen. Don't fight it. Don't be found battling against the Lord. James is saying to his readers that they should include God in their plans. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. But they didn't do that. Verse 16 says this, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The opposite of if the Lord wills is boasting and arrogance and evil. And they were, they were declared as boastful and arrogant and evil because they didn't include God in the plans that they made. I doubt that they set out wanting to be declared as boastful and arrogant and evil. It was just in ignorance or purposefully that they chose not to include God in their plans. You boast, you glory in, you take pride in, you, speak, you brag about, you speak loudly of your arrogance, what you can do, your ability your plans. We're going to this city. We're going to buy this. We're going to sell it for more. Then we're going to buy this and we're going to sell it for more with no consideration or acknowledgement or an invitation of including God. 
And when we're, <clears throat> I wanted to give an example of a boasting and an arrogance. We were driving from Jericoacoara, which is on the other side of the end of the world, as Kathy describes it. We were driving from Jericoacoara to Jijaca. And Jijaca is the end of the line, and we were in what's called a Shivanchi, which is kind of a, a glorified dune buggy. And it was old and kind of beat up, and it didn't have brakes because the sand would eat the brake pads. And so that's kind of what the situation was. And we just happened to be with my mom and dad. My mom and dad came down to visit us. We'd gone to Jericoacoara, which when you get over these sand dunes, and it's probably, I don't remember, 45-minute drive turned into four or five hours sometimes, that kind of a deal. But when you get over the top of these sand dunes, you come, you, you, you see this drop-dead gorgeous beach. A little simple group of people is what it used to be. Uh, and then this gorgeous beach. And so we took our parents up there and we're coming back. And I can't remember exactly what happened to the Shivanchi, but it was Kathy and I, my mom and my dad, and our three children that we had at the time all in this dune buggy. And either we ran into water or we ran off of the main path because it isn't any kind of a road. But that sand is so thick and soft that we just sunk into the sand. And it was either water or sand, I can't remember. But there we were, and then I tried to start the Shivanchi, and it wouldn't start. And the next thing you know, I look up, and here comes a truck full of men that had worked in Zizhaka, that had worked in Jericoacoara, that lived in Zizhaka. And they came up by us, and they stopped, and they all jumped out. And I'm glad there were a bunch of them, because they literally lifted up this car and put it over where the sand wasn't quite as soft. And then one of them started throwing parts away from the carburetor. And the next thing you knew, the car started. But at the end of that, one of them, knowing that I was a missionary, I didn't know who he was because we'd been there for a little while, but I'm sure he did because we're the odd people in town, lifted up his fist to heaven and said, look at the power of man in his arrogance. Not only did he not include God, but he lifted his fist up contrary to heaven. And James says, boasting in arrogance is evil. And we don't want to be found there. You boast in your arrogance, all such boasting in, is evil. In James, they, they weren't lifting their fist toward heaven against God. They just weren't including him. We're going to go here. We're going to do this. I'm going to depend upon my skill, the things that I've learned. I'm going to put my hard work to, to work for me. They weren't including God. All such boasting, he says, is evil. Why does making the plans of going to another city and buying and selling for a profit for a year or so, why does that rise to the level of evil? Why does it rise to that level? Nothing indicates they were going to do anything illegal in their activity. They were, they were just going to another city to work, but they left God out. They left out the one who created them, the one who sustains their life, the one who offers forgiveness, the one who desires relationship, and we could say many other things, and it was declared as evil. I was talking to a young man, this is while I was pastor here, it's been probably a year ago, no, not a year, about 10 years ago, and he and his fiance at the time came to church here a few times. I was talking with a young man, and it was about the Lord. His wife-to-be his wife -to -be was a believer, and he was not a believer. It was a cordial conversation, friendly evening, uh, friendly even. And in the conversation, he said, this concept that you talk about as God 
And I said, wait a minute. This concept is the one who gave you life. The concept that you're talking about is the one who gives you the breath that you have that you're breathing today. He's not just a concept. He's an individual who created us, creator God, who desires relationship. And those in James weren't including him in the relationship, and it was declared as evil. The interesting thing about all such boasting is that it's evil. Last week in James 4.11, we read the word evil. Speaking evil against somebody is, just, is the same as speaking evil against the law. And we remembered and looked and saw that it, that it meant morally bad or wrong to criticize. Don't speak evil against a brother. Don't speak evil against the law. That's what it meant last week in the use that he used and the word that he used. The word that's used in verse, verse 16 of chapter 4 isn't that same word. This is the word that means this is wicked. This is depraved. This is worthless. This is degenerate. All they did was didn't include God in their plans. And it seems like it's risen to a higher level of evil even than speaking against one's brother. It's wicked. Proverbs 16 says this, Pride goes before, before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And these individuals were proud. I can do this. I've learned this. I'm disciplined enough for this. I'm going to force myself to focus and do this. No consideration of God. It should remind us of the five I wills of Satan from Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. And he was declared as wicked and depraved and worthless and degenerate. But James says those who plan without including God in their plans are doing the very same thing. They're boasting in their, in their arrogance and, and it's evil. God resisting the proud, but giving grace to the humble. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. So that's a truth from Scripture that can be applied to um, violating a weaker brother, or not forgiving somebody, or not being obedient the way that I'm supposed to be obedient. But James uses it in this context. And the context is, I make my plans, and I don't include God. So now, if I know that I should, and I choose not to do it, for me, it's sin. Let's pray to God. Father, we bow before you. May we not be found making plans without asking you first. Not just asking you to bless them, the things that we've planned, but asking you what should our plan be and including you in that way. You're our creator. You're our God. You're the one who gives us life and breath. You're the one who's brought us back into relationship with you because of Jesus. So may we never be found guilty of not including you. And when we are, we ask that you would grow us up out of that so that we would always be God conscious, recognizing that you're the one who has the rights to guide our life. Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that for every believer that's in this place right here, right now. And Lord, if there'd be anybody like what James was writing to that just doesn't even consider God, I ask that you would use your word, maybe the illustration of the Lord's Supper, a very visual thing, 
to grip their heart and help them recognize forgiveness of sin is possible, right relationship with God, absolute forgiveness and clear conscience is only in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.